Welcome to Between the Stacks, After Hours, a podcast made possible by Athens Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you a conversation, a cocktail, and some contemplation about a notable author and their work. So grab your favorite beverage and let's go Between the Stacks, After Hours. Hello, this is Jennifer Baxter, the Library Director of the Athens Limestone Public Library, and we are coming back to you with an episode of Between the Stacks, After Hours. Okay, so as in our last episode, what we do for After Hours is we choose a cocktail in alignment with either an author or a book, and we go and take a deep dive into that author or that book while, what is the word I'm trying to think of? While enjoying while partaking, partaking of a special beverage. A special beverage, yes. Mm-hmm. So today's topic is Alain de Botton, who is a Swiss philosopher. He's a modern-day philosopher. A large portion of what he discusses is love, the topic of love. Right. So we actually chose the lady killer. The lady killer. Have you ever had a lady killer I before? Haven't. Me either. I have not. This will be our first mm. lady killer together. So we chose the lady killer because love and also the creator of the lady killer is Swiss. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. He's a Swiss bartender and it actually won some fancy international cocktail award, the IBA (laughs) International Cocktail Challenge in 1984. Oh, the year I was born. Oh my God. I was thinking it was almost a good year because I was born in 85. (laughs) Almost. Almost. Okay. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to mix this drink while I tell you what goes in it. Do it. Okay. So there's a, quite a few ingredients, and okay. I went all around the world today trying to collect said ingredients, and I made a few mistakes. So we're going to have as close of a version to the lady killer as we can. So the first ingredient is gin. And I'm not really good at measuring stuff, so I'm just going to kind of eyeball it. Okay. It's uh, a large shot glass. I feel like it's probably a normal size shot glass. Maybe I need to chill out on the... <laughs> The amounts, because that kind of took up a pretty large portion of the... Okay, so Cointreau. So it's orange liqueur, which this is orange liqueur. And they were kind of out of it. I don't know if this because of the Christmas holiday season. Maybe a lot of people had orange liqueur drinks. Okay, so the next one's actually, what I read was apricot brandy. And my, my brain was like, peach brandy, that's what that meant. Yeah. Okay, well now I'm looking at the official ingredients and it says... Apricot liqueur, not apricot brandy. I mean, they're like cousins, aren't they? Yeah, close enough. So a little bit of this. Are we going to have room for the juice? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That seems important, right? It might be a very (laughs) strong (laughs) flavor. Okay, so passion fruit juice. That was not as easy to find as you would think. I think we got just enough room. Sweet. One more ingredient, the pineapple juice. I do have that. And then apparently you're supposed to garnish it with an orange wedge and a stemmed cherry. Oh, we have that, definitely. Yes. It's very pretty. It looks delicious. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Oh. All right, here we go. Okay. Shake it up. I'm doing it like the bartender. I wish everybody could see Anna <laughs> dancing to the shaking sounds of the lady killer. So good. It's really cold in my hands. Is it? Yeah. That's a good sign. Okay. I think it right. smells good. Pour it up. To the Swiss lady killer. Cheers. Right. To Alain de Baton. Alain de Baton. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that is good. That's my new go-to cocktail. Everyone go to your local bartenders and ask them for the lady killer. Hmm. 
You won't regret it. And then go home and read On Love. On Love. So that's the book we both read, right? Right. Except mine was like a different version of the same book. Yeah, so it seems as though he first wrote essays on love, and that was the British version. I think On Love is like the American version that came out. Um, it was re-released as On Love. Interesting. Yeah. So he wrote this book. It was his first book, mm-hmm. and he wrote that when he was 23 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. 23. It's impressive. I mean, he probably didn't have much experience right. in relationships, but it's very shocking how poignant it is and it seems as though only someone with a lot of relationship experience would be able to write a lot of the points that he does yeah i remember when i was 23 i definitely didn't have that kind of perspective but like in or maturity exactly and i think i mentioned this to you before it's almost perfectly written like a new love story like i remember these moments Mm -hmm. in my very i think i met my ex-husband when i was 21 and then we started dating when i was 22 married by 24. Mm-hmm. So I remember experiencing a lot of these ugh, frustrating moments. Yeah. And I felt like I was very immature at that time, especially speaking to what you're saying. He was 23 when he wrote it, but you would think that it would be someone who lived through those moments, right. got mature, looked back. Because this book is not only about the philosophy of relationships, but it's a novel. So it's a novel and it spans the course of a relationship. And he's in a relationship with a girl named Chloe. Chloe, and she's a lady killer. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's really a story about their relationship, but he weaves in different philosophies throughout the relationship. You know, it starts with idealism, um, and it goes all the way to, like, fatalism, and um, Marxism is in it. It's it's interesting because the way he relates it to the typical struggles of relationships, the highs, the lows, he gives everyday experiences to portray different philosophies. And what's shocking to me is when I read it, I'm like, oh, I've been there. Yeah. I've had that experience in a relationship before. So it's shocking that he was 23 when he wrote it. Yeah. So in the book On Love, one chapter that really took me back to early dating is the chapter on authenticity about when they went on their first date. And he asks her, would you like some wine? And she replies, I don't know. Would you like wine? And he says, I really don't mind if you feel like it. And she says, it's as you please, whatever you want. Either way is fine with me. And he says, I agree. And so she says, should we have it or not? (laughs) So um, what's happening in this chapter is they're both trying to put on a representative Mm -hmm. and they're trying to be whoever the other person really wants them to be. And so it's just funny because I remember, you know, in that, in those early days, you're putting on a front for that person because you were trying to win them over. Mm-hmm. And um, he was concerned about how he should go about things because he wanted to be the kind of man that she wanted. And she was doing the same. And so therefore, neither one of them are ever going to see their authentic self. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to drag the relationship out in a really awkward way you know? right three months later surprise so, i love having wine i want lots of wine at dinner <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know and sitting here listening to you and kind of thinking about that maybe that's something we get better at as we get older because of those particular types of experiences right right and we get to them more quickly of course it doesn't have to always be with drinking <laughs> <laughs> i mean on this show it does do you like lady killers why well, yes yes i I'll do have two <laughs> Yeah, but think about in relationships, friendships or romantic relationships, uh, business relationships. Who are the people that you're most drawn to? The people who are just themselves. Yeah. Yeah. The whole chapter of authenticity gave me a giggle because it reminded me of 
all those times you're so concerned about being yourself. Yeah, for sure. And there's something to be said about a new relationship and trying to learn each mm-hmm. other. And and then there's this, I guess, probably this fear, mm-hmm. right? That if you show who you really, really are in the beginning and they don't accept you, but you're being that core version of yourself, that rejection may sting a little more. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you just kind of drop it out a little bit at a time. You know? That's very true, yeah. I've been writing here and there, and I, I actually talk a lot about this kind of stuff. And even the way you were raised has a lot to do with your comfortability level of exposing your true nature to right. people. Mm-hmm. Because maybe you only, in my case, recently in the last few years, got a handle of who you really think you are. Right. And not a polluted version of who you were told that you were. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you're very tender in that way. Yeah. It's fascinating that he was 23 when he wrote all this because it's, it is exactly what every person goes through in relationships. (laughs) Um, When he talks about the fear of happiness, Chloe, they go on a trip together and on the trip, they're having the best time. They're in Spain and they're having the best time. And all of a sudden she has this debilitating headache and the doctor comes to see her and he names some sort of an illness that she has. And he's like, well, what illness is that? And he said, the fear of happiness. Oh, wow. And so we talk, sometimes we sabotage things because we aren't sure if we're allowed happiness or we don't know how to be happy. We don't know how to just be content right. with being happy. Yeah, and that's I, very fascinating. It seems to, and this is conjecture, but how could you achieve real happiness with someone else? If you don't know what that means for yourself. Right. If you're not content with yourself. Right. You're expecting someone else to give you that happiness. Um, and just like oh, yeah. earlier when you say know you completely, mm-hmm. that person is doomed. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you're both doomed. You have to really be your own best friend and love yourself and create for yourself so that you can be extremely happy. And then when you meet that other person, they add to. Right. Because I think Elaine has said this in many variations and forms, but... Expecting someone else to create happiness for you is never going to work. You're setting you and your partner up to fail. That's exactly right. Yes. So they made a movie based on the book On Love. Mm -hmm. There's a movie called My Last Five Girlfriends, and it's based on On Love. And On Love, he has one girlfriend. Chloe. Yes, Chloe. (laughs) And um, she is part of all of the experiences throughout the book. In the movie... He is talking about the last five girlfriends, the last five important relationships that he had. So there's five different characters. What's interesting Mm -hmm. is that in the movie, the names of the last five girlfriends are, pay attention to the first letter of these names, Wendy, Rona, Olive, Natalie, and Gemma. Wrong. Wrong. Why? You will marry the wrong person. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So does he end up with any of them in the movie? No. Oh. <laughs> he <Yes>. doesn't. <laughs> They're all wrong. <laughs> well, and that's the same in the book. I don't want to ruin it, but yeah. he doesn't really end up with Chloe. No. So we have that idealism into, what did, What was the last thing you said? Fatalism. Fatalism. And- but it's not nihilism, because in the very end of the book, he's nihilism. like, oh, there's this new chick. I like that, though, because mm-hmm. it's... Uh, you may feel like you're going to die after this experience, but... There's something around the corner. Yeah. There are so many fish in the sea. Yeah. But it's also worth mentioning that you should probably find a fish that is your... You're compatible with. Yeah. And I don't remember this so much in the book as I do the movie, but in the movie, 
it shows where we end up projecting our frustration from something else Mm -hmm. onto our significant others. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, am I really upset with Natalie because she's loading the dishwasher too loudly while I'm watching TV? Or am I really upset because earlier in the day I had a work emergency that didn't work out in my favor? Um, We always project that onto Mm -hmm. someone who's close to us. Yeah. Or we we bottle it up and then we pass it on mm-hmm. uh, along the way. Um, Self awareness. Oh is yeah. Key. Mm-hmm. And really just stopping in that moment and speaking what is bothering us and being very honest about mm-hmm. our feelings in that moment. I've gotten to a point in my life where almost every time when someone lashes out mm-hmm. or attacks, and probably maybe having children helps with this, mm-hmm. you know, because you you stop and you think, I know I'm not the problem in this yeah. moment. Let's time out and let's talk about right. why you're upset. Let's just get it out there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can move on. Exactly. And that's how men do. Women don't do that as much. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest. On. I don't. You know, men can have a they can have a fist fight. Oh, yeah. Duke it out and then they're friends the next day. Yeah. Women will <laughs> silent treatment, hold a grudge. <laughs> we carry it for a while. Yeah. It's because we don't talk it out. And who's the first one in my relationship to ever say, hey, let's talk? Sandy, for sure. Really? I feel like I'm really good at not holding things on things. That's very good. Because I feel like conflict resolution is real. You put it out on the table. You identify your choices and your options. Mm -hmm. And then once I have recognize my options and my choices and I choose one, I feel like it's a character moment when you say, this is what I'm choosing and I'm going to, I'm going to be the living embodiment of this choice. Because if that's not the choice you wanted, then you're only lying to yourself and therefore lying to your partner. So I don't think that's fair. It's not. Give them the example about the shoes. Yeah. So, you know, they're still in the honeymoon phase of their relationship. They're very happy. She comes home with a pair of shoes she was so excited about them, and she thought they were the best shoes in the world. She was so excited about the purchase, and he thought they were the worst shoes ever made. And he hated them, and he didn't want her to wear them, right? Yeah. Because he felt like it affected the way he viewed her. Or even maybe reflected on him and what he finds attractive. Right. Yeah, they was... argued about it. I think they threw things, or she threw things at mm-hmm. him. So, in regard to the shoes... This is what Elaine Debaton says about how we view each other's flaws. The thing is that love gives us a ringside seat on somebody else's flaws. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're going to spot some things that kind of need to be mentioned. But often, the romantic view is to say, if you love me, you wouldn't criticize me. Mm-hmm. Actually, true love is often about trying to teach someone how to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but shoes aren't. Part of the there's, there's a lot of... Uh, I don't really like that quote, actually. a lot of conjecture wrapped up into that. Because Dang. just because you don't like my shoes doesn't mean that I'm not my best version of myself because you think my shoes are ugly. True that. But yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree with that on a macro level. And you and I had a conversation about that particular part while we were reading it. And you said that if your husband didn't like your shoes, you would say... Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do on a daily basis. Yeah. He, Hates most of the shoes I own, actually. <laughs> he always is like, I don't like them, but you like them. So. There you go. Y'all have matured past yeah. that idealism. And I think one of the quotes I saw that I really liked that Elaine de Baton had been quoted saying is, marriage is really just a decision to live in frustration. Yeah. You just say, you know what? Nothing's perfect. And- you know, I have to throw this in here right now, I think. I did a little more deep dive on him as a person. And mm-hmm. I was surprised, I guess surprised and not surprised to find out that he's an atheist. 
Right. So, but he's quoted in saying, what did he say? Let me find it. Uh, oh, here it is. I see religion as a storehouse of lots of really good ideas that a secular world should look at, raid, and learn from. So it's interesting that he's an atheist because I also do think he thinks that religion holds a lot of moral, ethical values yeah. that the secular world should. He was raised as a secular Jew. So, really? Yeah. And I didn't know what that meant, but I, I looked it up. Oh, well, do tell. <laughs> And it's a form of Judaism that focuses more on the human versus the Mm. creator. And I am probably grossly simplifying this, but the way I read it was that we are to focus on our life here and each other and the good we can do to our fellow man versus an ideology of creator that's elsewhere. Or just focusing on the next world. That's interesting. Yeah. And he also had an interesting relationship with his father, correct? I don't know anything about that. I read something about how he had a strained relationship with his father. His father was a very serious person. He, he was quoted as saying, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny did not exist in my house. It was child's play. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So he's such a deep thinker, and it's almost like if he didn't have those opportunities to be a dreamy child, was he raised to be such a... That's true. And dissecting things at every moment. Yeah. So actually, what very first introduced me to Elaine, it was a YouTube video called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Yes. Did you watch it? I did. I really liked it. Mm -hmm. So it was originally an article that he submitted to the New York Times, and it is still to this day one of their most widely read articles that they've ever had. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. It stepped on my toes. Major And one of the things being, you know, we all sulk, right, in a relationship. And it talks about giving someone the silent treatment. And why do we do that? When someone hurts us or doesn't do something that we want them to do, why do we sulk and why do we hole up and give them the silent treatment, that sort of thing? And um, he says, we don't sulk with everybody. We limit our sulks to very particular person, the person who's supposed to love us and understand us. And we make this equation that if you love me, you're supposed to understand me, even if I don't explain what's wrong. So yeah. we're, hold, we're really holding people to, to such a high standard mm-hmm. um, that they're supposed An to complete us standard. and know us completely. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody can. Right. I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube mm-hmm. after watching Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Became obsessed with Elaine. I love him. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. And he, he has so many videos on YouTube under the title The School of Life, mm. which is a nonprofit organization he founded in 2008. Essentially, his goal is to help people understand why they're unhappy. And so the the topics range from marriage to, I mean, anything under the sun, how we carry emotional baggage into our adulthood from our childhoods, kind of unraveling all aspects and facets of the human condition. Mm -hmm. This was interesting to me, too. I watched another interview on it. Um, He was explaining why he founded the School of Life and because he is Swiss born. And the Swiss have all of this health care available. They have this very idealistic system. And yet he said that they're one of the, the highest suicide rates out there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was like, why? We've created a utopia, and yet we're so depressed. And so that got him down this, this whole track of trying to unravel those things. So the School of Life is available on YouTube. They have a ton of videos. They have a website. They have books, articles, all kinds of really useful stuff, even on the work environment. But um, he did this podcast that I listened to called The True Hard Work of Love and Relationships. And one of the quotes that really stood out to me, I ended up writing a little bit about it myself. He said, so we have this ideal of what love is and then these very, very unhelpful narratives of love. Mm-hmm. 
Um, they're everywhere. They're in movies and songs. If you say to people, look, love is a painful, poignant, touching attempt by two flawed individuals to try and meet each other's needs in situations of gross uncertainty and ignorance. That stuck with me because it's so true. We think our relationships are supposed to emulate what we see on TV. Oh, absolutely. And he also had another quote that I was reading um, talking about how we fantasize about the wedding day. Uh, we should fantasize act the actual marriage instead of fantasizing the wedding day because the, the wedding is just the gateway. Oh, yeah. It's literally one day. Right. Of a lifetime, mm-hmm. hopefully. And even if you, I mean, 50% of people get divorced. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's higher. I don't know. But it's still a lifetime. So even if we have the wedding day and then we have a marriage and it's not ideal and then we end that marriage, there's this lifetime of something that you experienced that profoundly changed you, that you continue to carry those pieces of what we learned into who we are. I think that a lot of people, okay, so from birth as a female, Mm -hmm. you can back me up on this or not. Maybe your experience is different, but (laughs) you're born and they're like, you're going to be a wife one day. Oh yeah, You'll be a wife and a mother, wife and mother, wife, 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 marriage, marriage. I've always heard it as... You know, women are expected to be martyrs for their family. I've never heard that, but um, I, I can see that. Yeah. And, well, that's the whole idealistic It's like we, we tell our children and our daughters, you can grow up and be anything you want. Except also you'll be a mother. Except, you know, what are you doing, you know? Mm-hmm. No, it's I, a very difficult topic, but yeah. It is. You know, I always get in really deep conversations with people. I have a great friend. We ended up talking uh, at length about what her mother emulated to her Mm -hmm. and she felt like that impacted her marriage and yet in a different variation she's doing things and I said I said I don't want you to get mad at me but do you not see a connection between what you're doing and emulating to your children and what your mom did to emulate to you and she was like no and I was like all righty cool 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 yeah me neither but I mean that's what we talk about with generational characteristics, whether it's abuse or the way you view marriage or whatever, your parents did this. You don't think you're doing that. You're literally doing it. You're embedding it into your children. They're going to turn around and do it to theirs. Yeah. What did you just say that made me think of something else? But you can have both. You can. And we need to actually empower and support women to be able to do it all. Yeah. And I think too, normalizing that men can do both as well. Absolutely. You know, and that there's a kind of a two pronged thing there. Very true. Yeah. And you get so attached to this idea of what you're supposed to be. And you, you know, the wedding day is idealizing culture and there's not a lot of effort in terms of expanding and expounding. And maybe there is now because I'm 36. So we're talking about in the nineties. Right. Right. But there wasn't as much talk about who you're going to be professionally and um, who a woman can be outside of that. Because like you said, there can be both, mm-hmm. but we only really talked about one aspect of right. womanhood. And I think we are probably doing that more now, but enabling our children, our daughters to think past that. Well, think about what movies you were raised on, what was in the entertainment or what was, what was always in your face. And Malcolm Gladwell does a really fantastic podcast on that subject of, you know, when we were young, the Disney movies were oh, Princess yeah. Gets Saved by the Prince. Yeah. Every time. Marriage. Now it's wedding. changed these days, but Malcolm Gladwell actually goes back and rewrites the Little Mermaid story because he was yeah. so upset with the way it was written. Uh, it's really fascinating. Oh, were history. you and I talking about that before? We may have. The been. Little Mermaid. Yeah, she was obsessed with. She was obsessed. She was willing to give up her voice uh-huh. and 
what symbolism is that? I know. I was just about to say that. That's so creepy. She gave up her voice for a man. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got to see that through. I-, I can't imagine a healthy man who would be happy. Would allow that. Yeah. yeah. Th- don't you want your partner to yeah. add to right. your life and-, and who you are? Absolutely. I won't say who, but I went on a couple of dates with this guy, and we were at dinner, and I was talking, and he literally said, hush and eat your food. And I was like, <laughs> wow. Like, And the thing is, I was like, whatever. It's not. It wasn't offensive because I was like, this person's just not for me. And I, I think I started this chain of thought earlier and didn't finish, but people settle because the first real relationship we have, usually. And if it's at the right time in your life, you're like, well, shoot. This is it then. We get married now. That's what we do. And especially being so young, like who I was at 24 versus now, totally different people. Right. I mean, maybe not totally different, but definitely a lot more depth and understanding of who I am and my preferences. And so, you know, you stumble into somebody, you're like, boom, get married. And then you're like, wow, this is not working at all. I'm super unhappy. (laughs) I'm not lecturing. I'm just no. giving my experience. Got it. Yeah. You can lecture me. It's fine. You can lecture me. <laughs> I mean, you've been married for what? 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. And I'm just so thankful that I was at that time of my life and I was with my best friend and that decision was a good one for us. You that's know? awesome. Awesome. And I think friends, friendship, that's a mm-hmm. huge Absolutely. part of it. And he made a comment saying um, marriage is not so much about that initial fall in love as it is someone that you can actually be in business with. So got to be a partnership. Mm-hmm. Just like when Andy and I took three kids to Disney World by ourselves. <laughs> you have a business contract. Get it done. You know your part. <laughs> Good job, Mom. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so he's he's super interesting, Elaine. Mm-hmm. He's multifaceted. Um, so like we said, he had he's written 10 books. Um, he's started the School of Life, which is really cool in itself. Go check it out. Actually, today I learned that he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Oh, wow. There's only 600 of them worldwide at this time. It's a group of notable authors and people who have created, and it's kind of, you know, exclusive. I guess there's only 600 in the world. But beyond that, he got into the idea of architecture. Mm, Yes. And how architecture affects your well-being and your happiness. Yeah. Right? The name of his book is called The Architecture of Happiness. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the whole idea of the architecture of happiness is our environment and how it impacts our lives and who we are. Mm -hmm. He created these actual, legitimate, real-life houses. It started with one. I think there's eight total. They're homes over in the U.K. that the public can rent. What? Yeah. They are built specifically as these getaways for the public to spend time and reflect Stop it. Yeah. So it's not just a book no. about how architecture can it's affect your mood. It's a living, It's actually a thing. Yeah. One's really pretty. One's really interesting. Interesting. Are they very simplistic? Um, the ones that I saw, definitely something you'd see in, a, in some sort of fancy schmancy architecture magazine, like beautiful, mm-hmm. open, and a lot of colors. Each house is kind of built around a specific idea. And, it, and in one of the ones I looked at, there are two areas that encourage the person who's staying there to spend time in this specific area and reflect. And there was this monument with this quote on it, and it said, All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Because when do we, really? I do it a lot. 
Well, good for you. No, because I'm not, I don't have a hustling, bustling, wonderful family life like you do. I literally live by myself. So, but in that, I've had a lot of time. We forget how to do it, which is, it's very healthy. Oh, yeah. But I've had a lot of time to reflect on everything. That's why I have so many opinions. Don't hang out with me. I like it. (laughs) I'm the worst. (laughs) You're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. I am fascinated by this. It ain't cheap. And yet a concern for architecture and design is too often described as frivolous, even self-indulgent. The architecture of happiness starts from the idea that where we are heavily influences who we can be and argues that it is architecture's task to stand as an eloquent reminder of our full potential. I love that. It really connects a lot to, and I think we probably learned this growing up and we Listened to it and talked about it, but your environment sets the tone. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've worked in libraries for how many millions of years? And a lot of times they're really underfunded. And so most of the libraries I've ever worked in were built in the 80s, you know, and they're falling apart. Mm-hmm. And it really sets the tone of where you work. But when I came to Athens and the day I interviewed, you were there. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my gosh, this building is beautiful so much potential and it's just big and open and light fresh yeah Yeah. it makes a huge difference in setting the tone of who we are um i i actually am fascinated i don't like that there's not much about he and his wife to read about online yeah because he's he writes so much about happiness and about relationships and love and marriage Uh of course i'm curious about his marriage and his wife relationship but there wasn't much to read about it I did the same thing. So I looked up, like, the biography of him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is not a biography on him. Right. It doesn't exist. Which I was like, that's really disappointing because we can't dig into him as a right. person. He shares so much philosophy and so many experiences that we don't know if he actually had or if he just is. Where did he actually hear about you? Yeah. If you're writing about these experiences, surely you have experienced them or someone has told you about some experiences. Yeah. And I'm, it's not that I, I agree with most I of what too. he says, yeah, but exactly. how did he get there so quickly? Right. It is a really good question because mm-hmm. I don't feel like most people have the ability to relate and relay unless they have experienced right. some version of, of yeah. what they're talking about. It was like painful and annoying it and is. sad. And, and stepped on your toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember being like, oh, God, I know what that feels yeah, like. been there. <laughs> Awful. Absolutely. But he has 10 books. He talks about artist therapy. He talks about yeah. the news, mm-hmm. um, religion. The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, A Week at the Airport, and, I mean, everything in between. So it's almost like his topics are just such a wide range. But it sounds as though he really pulls it all in, and it all kind of culminates at happiness. Mm-hmm. Or in, contentedness. In self-awareness, or, yeah. emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. and applying those things to different facets right. of life. And I think, too, have you watched many of his School of Life videos? No, just the, um, you will marry the wrong person. They're so wonderful and so useful, and they span life. I mean, he talks about how to gain self-awareness and emotional intelligence. He doesn't say that, but that would be my summation of his videos. Right. What's funny is that the other author that we talked about doing next Mm -hmm. almost does the same Uh and talks about Mm self-awareness, emotional intelligence, but has a different approach. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so next time we'll be discussing Mark Manson Mm -hmm. and all of the interesting books he's written. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F. Yeah. And Everything is F'd. Yes. 
So we'll, we'll be discussing Mark Manson next time. Make sure and tune in to our next episode and get the deets on old Mark because we love talking about emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Too much, probably. Through literature. So go to your local public library and get... Check out a book, man. On love. On love. All right, guys. We've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, After Hours, a podcast brought to you by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. Join us next time for another conversation and a close-up look of a featured author and their work. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, please visit the Athens-Limestone County Library website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.